It's good to see you all tonight. Um, I'm loving 1 John. I hope you are as well. Um, And we come to a passage tonight, a beautiful passage about love. Um, I wonder if you'd bow your heads with me as we pray to our Heavenly Father about his word tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your sheep. And Father, you are our good shepherd. Father, we pray that tonight we as your sheep would hear your voice. And Father, so respond to you in faith. And as a result, live like you, live lives of love. So Father, would you do a great work in us tonight by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'd be better off without religion, don't you think? We'd be better off without religion, right? Back in 2008, there was a big debate held here in Sydney, uh, put on by the Sydney Morning Herald and the St James Ethics Institute here. It was televised by the ABC online and on radio, and the motion that was put forward for debate was, we'd be better off without religion. It was between an atheist or a group of atheists who came together to to argue positively for that motion. And then, of course, when it comes to anything religious in our city, we roll out a few Christians, and they debate the atheists publicly. And that's what happened. It was a fascinating evening. About 1,800 people people turned up for this debate. Uh, Those who were there in attendance, and there were many others watching online and listening on the radio to this debate. They took an entrance poll, which was really interesting, of people as they came in to see, did they agree or disagree with the motion at that point as they came in? And they also did an exit poll to see if people had moved at all across the evening. I thought it was kind of cool to see if there's any movement, to see if there was a result happening in this particular debate. Overwhelmingly, the motion won, both on the entrance and the exit polls. At least this audience of Sydney Morning Herald reading, ABC listening people believe that we'd be better off without Christianity in our world. And it was on that night, I think, or a little bit after, that it dawned on me that there's been a really big shift in the public perception of the church, of Christianity, in our culture, perhaps over the last, say, 10 or 15 years. About 10 or 15 years ago, most people would think about Christianity and say, oh, they're those holier-than-thou people. Uh, They're those self-righteous ones who think they know right and wrong and all that sort of stuff. And upon that basis, people would reject Christianity altogether, not think it's worth following Jesus. But now at least it's common, at least in the public square, for a secular humanist, most people that you work with in your workplace, to now think that Christianity is immoral, brainwashing people, that it's in fact pernicious, it's a pernicious force in the world doing more damage than good in our society. That's quite a significant shift that's taken place in our culture over the 10 or 15 years. Now, of course, there are things we can say in response to that challenge that we'd be better off without Christianity in our world. Uh, We can say, of course, that accounts of the church's um, evil doings are grossly over-exaggerated often. Uh, For example, people claim that over the 350 years of the Spanish Inquisition, millions of people were executed at the hands of Christians. Uh, The historians tell us it was only about 6,000 people Absolutely, that's 6,000 more people than it was necessary for. But gross over-exaggerations. 
There are other things we can say in response to we'd be better off without Christianity. I mean, for example, we can say to the atheists, for example, it's impossible for them to take the high moral ground on such an issue as if to say they are the bastions of kindness, mercy, compassion and grace. You only have to look at regimes of the 20th century to see that they aren't the bastions of compassion, mercy and grace in most accounts. I won't even have to name some of the things that they got up to in that time. There are things we can say in response to that argument. But in the end, I'm more convinced that rather than brilliant arguments defending Christianity, although they are necessary, rather than brilliant arguments, I think the most powerful thing we have are beautiful lives or a beautiful life embodying the gospel of Jesus Christ. We flourish not by brilliant arguments but by beautiful lives lived in the community of the church. That's what John, 1 John pushes us to see. That's why I am committed to local parish ministry. That's why I love serving Kirribilli and Lavender Bay in our mission area. Because the power of a local church here in Lavender Bay and in Kirribilli far exceeds the power of a book someone can write, a brilliant article someone can compose, or a public debate or a lecture. Why? Well, many people will find those things interesting at various points in their lives. But when they come into personal contact with a community that embodies the gospel, with all of its compassion and humility, love and kindness, it's, it's a knockdown argument most times. And this is what Jesus said ought to be the case throughout the gospels, and it's what he says in our text in 1 John. Love Grace, mercy, that issues from an understanding of the gospel is what is to mark us as God's people. Tonight we come to a passage on love, uh, this great passage about love. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been paying attention over the past four weeks, we've been going through this letter of 1 John and there's been this alternating pattern from week to week. We started with a passage about truth and then we followed by a passage about love and then we had a passage about truth and now we hit a passage about Love. Our first week we had truth. We saw the three pillars of the Christian faith. That our, tr- our faith is based on events, acknowledging sin, but then praising God for his grace and mercy in the atoning work of Jesus. Events, <coughs> sin, but atonement. Second week we looked at love, that great passage where Jesus says, A new command I give to you, love one another. Such that love is not the only thing Jesus told us to do, but it's the thing that guides us, lights up everything that we are to do if we're a follower of Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at truth. That our Christian faith, our community has to be based on three things. Being secure in Christ, distinct from the world, and devoted to the Gospels and the teachings of the New Testament and the whole of Scripture, in fact. And tonight we come... To love and have a look with me at chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. Classic, beautiful verses. Uh, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? Little children, John's way of referring to Christians, followers of Jesus that he's addressing. Little children, we must not love with word or speech but with truth. And action. 
and verse 1 of our chapter, verse chapter 3, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. We have to take on God's likeness. He is love. And we live lives of love in response to his gospel. The other passage we looked at today, I want to look at that briefly tonight, is, is the passage we had read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13, 14 to 16. Now Jesus here, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of compels us to live lives as light in the world. It comes after the stunning Beatitudes. And Jesus says these words to his disciples on the mountainside. You, and literally there it's a plural, it's a good Aussie word, yous, you know, yous guys, these sort of 12 shabby guys and a bunch of other people there, yous are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That is an extraordinary passage from the Bible for many reasons. Not only is this the Lord Jesus Christ himself, God incarnate, speaking to a group of people on a hillside of Galilee, God who's come down from glory into our messed up world in order to fix it, and here is God himself speaking. That's extraordinary enough. The other idea that's extraordinary is the idea of light of the world. A light for the nations is a powerful Jewish idea in the contemporary times. Many Jewish writers would write longing for this long-awaited light of the nations to come into the world. And it comes ultimately in Isaiah 49, that's where we pick it up, in which it says this in verse 6, It is not enough for you to be my servant. There is a double sort of allusion there to God's Son, Jesus Christ, who will come as the suffering servant, laying down his life for the world, but also kind of to the God's people, picking up there. It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now here is a word from God, an Old Testament prophecy, hundreds of years before Jesus, the suffering servant, came into the world to bring rescue and salvation to others. We know that most Jews in this period thought that the light of the world was Jerusalem the actual city. That was the beautiful, shiny thing in the world that would draw people from every nation, from the ends of the earth, to come and praise God and meet him and be saved. It's good to know that because now you need to transport yourselves from thinking about Jerusalem to now thinking about Jesus standing on a hillside outside of Galilee. And Jesus looked at this shabby bunch of people and said, use are the light of the world. I reckon they were all sitting there kind of looking at each other, scratching their heads going, us? I thought thought it was meant to be Jerusalem, but he's he's kind of talking to you and me. You are the light of the world. You are the community that will bring salvation of God, the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. And the result, as you can see, is that the people will see your good deeds and praise, the Greek word for praise is doxadzo, you will doxadzo your Father in heaven. Not just thank God, but bow down and worship him because of the deeds you are doing that spring from a life transformed by Jesus Christ and his gospel. 
So Jesus is saying that the disciples are this light of the world that Isaiah is predicting that will lead the world to give glory to God. And the question I want to ask at this point is, what does Jesus say makes the shine? What brings the luster that will bring God the glory? How does it take place? Well, what is the world going to see when they see the light? Well, from our passage, it's good deeds. I'm not making that up, am I? Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to God. Jesus here thinks that good deeds will shine the light of God and draw people to doxadzo him, to, to worship him. And of course, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus goes on to say, we know what those good deeds look like. We see them in the Beatitudes, to be peacemakers, to love our enemies. And then Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to kind of expand that. To to know Jesus, to know the Gospel, leads to a life where we care for the poor. We don't judge people. We turn the other cheek. We love our enemies. We live by God's sexual ethic. These are the good deeds that would shine and bring God glory. And the plural is, is really important to spot. Jesus is not just talking about individual Christians although powerful when we do our good deeds in response to God's love for us, but it's the community of good deeds. Because he's literally saying, use are the light. Not use are the light, but use are the light of the world. My point is that as disciples of Jesus, living in community, practising love for neighbour, care for the poor, love for the enemy, etc., etc., so the light shines. Not only as individual islands of faith, but as a continent of faith practising good deeds. And of course, the early Christians devoted themselves to spectacular acts of love all over the Roman Empire. In the very first year of Christianity, the very first year after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God and started drawing people to himself by his grace and mercy, In the very first year of Christianity, Christians established a food roster which crossed racial boundaries, socioeconomic divides. Remember we've been talking in 1 John about this idea of social capital, building within community so that we can then bridge out and span out and impact the rest of the world, impact community for the good. Well, here is a, a small group of people banding together, binding together to reach out with this food roster you know what it needed? It needed seven men to run this food roster. You can read about it in Acts chapter 6 if you flick into your Bible. I love that it was seven men. Men, listen to this. 99% of the people I... Well, 99% of the churches I know who run food ministries, they're operated by women. Here, in Acts, it was seven men. Men, if you have ears to hear, let you hear tonight. The Apostle Paul continued on in his mission and over a 10-year period went on a collection, collecting money for men and women and children who were suffering from a severe famine in the 40s AD. There was massive famine hit Jerusalem and Judea, uh, killing many because of this famine. While Paul was off telling the world about Jesus Christ, moving across the continent, as he's going along, he's collecting money in order to support those who were suffering back in Jerusalem. 
Uh, we're told that he collected so much money that when he got back to Jerusalem, he needed to be escorted, like with an armour guard truck, you know, bodyguards to kind of walk along with him because he was collecting so much money for these people. There's Paul, advancing the gospel, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, lives being changed, and while he's at it, he's doing good deeds, collecting money for the poor. They go together. Integral part of following Jesus Christ. And we know that by the year 250 AD, the Church of Rome, don't you think about just the Vatican and the Roman Catholic Church, not at all. Think about the the organic church growing out of the truth of the gospel, rooted in the truth, established in love, This year 250, Roman Christians, under serious persecution, bodily, emotionally and spiritually, we have records that that church fed on a daily food roster 1,500 people. One historian wrote that made the poverty role of the Church of Rome the largest social collective in all of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had many collectives. They were kind of like unions. We had the, you know, the bread makers union, the metal workers union, the leather makers union. And here we have the largest role, the largest social collective in the whole of the Roman Empire was this poverty role run by ordinary Christians compelled by the love of God to feed their fellow men. And then Emperor Julian, I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. Not our Julian, another Emperor Julian. Um, he was a pagan ruler in about the year, uh, you know, growing up in the Roman Empire. And he did all he could to oppress uh, Christians. He hated Christianity. Why did he hate Christianity? We have heaps of letters telling us why he hated them. He hated them because they were so loving, so kind, so merciful, so good. He writes this, Why? Do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers that have done the most to increase this atheism? Interesting use of the word atheism. He's there saying he considered Christians to be atheists because they wouldn't bow down and worship the Greek and Roman gods of the time. They said Jesus Christ is the Lord and Saviour. We worship him alone. So Julian saw them as atheists. It is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that's Christians, support not their own poor but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And in his letter he goes on to say, compelled by this sort of jealousy that the Christians are doing all the good work and even caring for his people as he should be doing it, he writes, I'm going to give millions of our kind of imperial bank account uh, to establish a social welfare system to look after our own people. The year after he wrote this letter to Cassius, Julian died. The social welfare system never got established. Why would it? For pagans don't believe in gods of love, grace and mercy. Pagans believe the gods were capricious and they needed to be placated somehow. They could wake up in any kind of mood each day and therefore you'd have to hope that you could make some kind of sacrifice in order to appease them to kind of live a happy day. But their motivator was not grace, compassion and mercy. There was no motivator in that world for the kind of lives of grace, mercy and compassion that the Christians became famous for. Of course, Christians, their whole universe revolved around the life-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God coming into the world, giving up everything so that we may have life and have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. God comes into the world to die for the unlovely, to die for the unworthy. 
to give us hope, forgiveness and new hearts. This inspired good deeds. And most historians will concede was a key factor in the extraordinary growth of the Christian church in the early days. Two factors which led to the growth of the church and its impact in the world were two things, knowing Jesus Christ, leading to lives of love, truth and love. There are so many other passages that I could take you to in the New Testament that could have bring these two big ideas together. You know, good words and good deeds, truth and then love coming together, inspiring us to live as God's people. But let me read again 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and 18. For this is how we have come to know love. Here's the truth. He laid down his life for us. And here's the result of knowing that truth. We should lay our lives down for our brothers. If anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in needs but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? Little children, we must not love with word or speech but with truth and action. The connection between good words and good deeds is just so clear in this passage. This passage is not saying you only need good deeds. You don't need good news. That's not what it's saying at all. It can't be saying that. This passage is saying the life of the Christian is marked by truth lived out. How do you know you know God? How do you know God? You trust his promises. You trust his revealed word, Jesus Christ. How do you know you know him? You try to love others. I said that the other week. That the truth of the gospel of humility of God is preached. The humility of Christians makes the gospel beautiful. Good deeds match the good news and they work together and that advances the gospel. Anyone here read Tim Winton? Anyone's a Tim Winton fan? A few people. If you haven't read him, you should read him. I haven't read heaps of him, but I've read a couple of his works and it's beautiful. Uh, Some years ago, he was interviewed by Andrew Denton on the ABC uh, on a beautiful documentary. And Tim Winton, if you didn't know, he's a Christian. Uh, and he often weaves the gospel into some of his texts. Uh, it's certainly there in The Turning, it's certainly there in Cloud Street as well. Tim Winton told the most extraordinary story on Andrew Denton that night of how his, he and his family got saved, how they came into fellow, and to know Jesus Christ and his love. You see, Tim Winton's dad was a policeman. Uh, Tim Winton's dad got knocked off his motorbike serving in the police force in the 1960s. Uh, He was knocked off his bike by a drunk driver who was bedridden for the rest of his days. In the 60s, there wasn't much sort of medical care available to families sort of caring for people at home, so it was hard work for the family looking after their dad. Tim was very young. His dad was the shell of the former self that he was. They couldn't even wash their dad. Apparently Tim Winston's dad was such a big, burly guy, they actually couldn't move him off his bed and get him into the bath. So they had to sort of wipe him down wherever he was in situ in his bed. One day, the family got a knock at the door by another big, burly guy, and this guy happened to be a Baptist pastor, a Christian. They opened the door, and there was this man at the door, and he said, G'day, I'm Glenn Thomas. I've heard your man's a bit crook. I'm happy to help. Apparently Len Thomas would turn up every day at the same time to help out. And what he would do, he'd come into the house, 
Go over to Mr. Whitney. Pick him up, because he could. Carry him to the bathroom. Put him in the bath. And his family would wash him. And then Len would come back into the bathroom, pick him up, and take him back to his bed so his family could dry him, dress him, care for him, love him. Tim Whitney is telling the story and he said it was a strangely sacrificial act from someone who turned out to be a Christian. And he said that strangely sacrificial act was such a powerful portrait of what he believed that they all suddenly found themselves believing in Jesus Christ. Tim's mum first, then Tim himself, and then Tim's brother who's now a cracking, cracking chaplain for the Lord Jesus Christ in Perth in Western Australia. The power of a life that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't just mean a life that's moral, you know, goody two-shoes. I mean a life that's extravagantly self-sacrificial. Because that's what the gospel looks like. Gospel isn't some moral program. It looks like love. The love of God. The self-giving of God. And when individual Christians and the whole church embody that kind of love, so long as the truth of the gospel is being preached, the gospel advances. It's beautiful. Let me tell you one really quick story before I get to the end. Uh, I was at Oxygen Conference this week um, and I, we heard from some fantastic guys. Professor John Lennox was there and he was the guy, one of the guys that was uh, speaking at that debate back in 2008. Another one that I heard from was uh, Don Carson, Dr. Don Carson. Many of you might have read Dr. Don's work at times. Um, Don shared this wonderful story. I want to share it with you. He shared this wonderful story when he was a you know, freshman at college and he was at this college and he was... Um, in this bloke's only college and he realised there were 200 guys in this college and he and one other guy were the only evangelical Bible-believing Christians in the whole place. You know, so as only Don Carson would do, he struck up a Bible study. Um, he sort of claimed that he didn't know much. I kind of find that hard to believe. Um, but he claimed that he wasn't very savvy with the Bible so all they did was kind of advertise, we're going to have a session where you can come and we're just going to read Mark's Gospel together. And so, you know, first time around, apparently two or three guys turned up and I thought it was amazing. And then next week, four or five more came. And then within three weeks, they had 16 blokes turning up to just to read Mark's Gospel. They had no idea how to answer any of their questions, though, apparently. Anyway, there was another guy on campus who was, you know, a Baptist pastor. Um, apparently, he was a... Maybe there's something going on with Baptist pastors. He was this big, burly guy. Apparently, tats all over him, you know, like really kind of hard and kind of nut. And apparently he knew stuff, though. He was good. So, you know, Don and his other mates sort of said, oh, we've got two guys that have got questions and they keep asking us questions and, well, we don't really know how to answer them, so can they come and see you? And so, you know, this guy said, yep, sure, bring him along, you know. So Don and his mate kind of invite these two blokes in and they sat down and the first guy gets going and he kind of had all these kind of questions and was kind of a bit lackadaisical and, you know, the big burly pastor's just kind of sitting there listening and listening and... You know, it's kind of going on and on and on. And the big belly pastor goes, mate, I've got no time for you. No time, sorry. I've got some books you can read, but when you've got real questions, come back. Imagine that. You know, sorry, mate, I've got no time in my diary for you. 
And it was done, done deal. The other guy got to ask his questions, and his big idea, he said this, he goes, look, what I really want to know is what's the difference between you and me? I mean, I've come from this kind of Christian family, you know, and I, but it's, we're kind of liberal, I guess, if we compare ourselves to you, Mr. Burley, you know, tattooed pastor, you know. Um, you know, I don't really believe, I mean, we kind of do, we know what's, we try to live, try to live moral lives, and I don't really believe that Jesus was kind of real, but I guess he's had some good things to say if he was, and, and I don't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But, like, you claim to be a Christian, and so do I, but I, I want you to show me what the difference is. And there's the big burly guy sitting there, and he goes, watch me, watch me. And he said to this guy, I've got a spare room in my house. You can come and stay with me. There's eight weeks till the end of term. You can come and live in with me and just watch me. Watch how my life is transformed by the gospel. The young guy was a bit flabbergasted and said, oh, I don't know if I can move in with you for eight weeks, but I'll kind of come around. So three, three nights a week he would come around, spend time, read the Bible, watch them in action. By the end of term, he became a Christian. And now he's serving Jesus as a missionary in China. Watch me. A life lived knowing the truth and then lived out in love. Watch me. Good deeds and good news go together. Truth and love. You finish. Remember the debate that I said at the outset, 2008, this debate that happened? That debate was a spectacularly beautiful, dramatic loss for the Christians. Um, we failed miserably to convince people based on the entrance and exit polls. However, they announced the numbers and there was a movement of, guess what? One. Statistically speaking, one person had moved from thinking at the beginning of the night, Christianity is dangerous, terrible, we don't need it, we get rid of the religion. One person had moved from that saying, no, no, we'd be better off with Christianity. Um, I remember going to a little function straight after that debate with a few people and I got to talking with some people and then I got to talking with this one guy and I said to this guy, what did you make of the debate? He said, you know what, I changed my mind. And I said, whoa, you're the one. You're the guy that made the move. And I said, what changed your mind? How did you move from thinking Christianity was terrible to thinking oh, it was actually good for our world? What changed your mind? He said, well, it wasn't all the highbrow intellectual arguments. It was actually just someone from the platform saying... Picture in your mind's eye someone you know who is a sincere Christian and then ask yourself sincerely, would the world be a better place if that person didn't exist? And this guy got to thinking, he thought about an auntie of his who was a sincere follower of Jesus Christ and he went far out, the world would not be a better place if she didn't exist. And that's what moved him from one side of the motion to the other. I wish I could say tonight that you, know, you told me that he sort of dropped to his knees and doxed so the father and worshipped him and he's a Christian. I don't know. But who knows what influence that auntie has had on his life ever since. But here's the point. One by one, when people who don't believe come into contact, contact with communities that do, not only will they potentially believe the gospel, then they'll be transformed by the gospel live lives of love themselves. One by one, people will be convinced by God's grace. Good deeds and good news go together. They shine the glory of God. Let's live a beautiful life as God's people, flourishing, not with brilliant arguments, but with a beautiful life, embodying the gospel for the good of God's glory. Let me pray. Let me pray.
Father, we do thank you and praise you for your great love for us. Uh, Father, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, Father, we pray that we would be a community of your people, your hands and feet in this world. Father, who know the truth and so live it out in lives of love, individually but powerfully as a community of love. And so, Father, give us opportunities, we pray, to shine as lights in the world for your glory. Father, give us opportunities, open our eyes to those opportunities to care for the poor, to love our enemies. Father, to serve those who are unlovely, because, Father, we know that we were unlovely and you have loved us. Father, compel us by the truth to go out tonight into this week and for the rest of our days, living lives of love. In Jesus' name. Amen.